This is the Flutie Flakes cast. I am Doug Flutie, and it has been it's been an amazing week at the Masters. I, I just I'm not a golf freak. I'm not a guy that is so all in on golf. I love the week of the Masters. Along those lines, my guest this week is going to be Will Zalatoris. Will finished second to Hideki Matsuzama, who won uh, his first Masters and was the first uh, Japanese player to come out and win the Masters. So congratulations to Hideki. Uh, but really excited to talk to Will, young kid that just played his heart out and finishes one stroke off. Um, the Masters. Uh, we've all got memories. We, you know, anyone that follows golf at all, it's the picturesque uh, settings, the twelfth green. Uh, for me, the number one nostalgic point of it is the ceremonial tee shot. Uh, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player for years have have gone up and done the ceremonial tee shot this year. Uh, in the absence of Arnold Palmer passing away a few couple of years ago, uh, Lee Elder uh, stepping up at the tee box with Jack Nicholas and Gary player. It's just an amazing nostalgic moment for me because they don't just represent their era. They represent every era that has come through Augusta and played and has created the legacy and the tradition that is the masters. You know, we all have these visions of what our favorite moments for me, it's, it's Jack Nicholas draining a putt on 17 and following the putt in with his putter raised uh, to win in 86 the most amazing shot, the one that stands out more than anything, Tiger Woods on 16, chipping from the backside, an impossible chip shot to even get close. And it trickles down and it rolls. He plays it left to right. It comes down the backside of the hill, trickling towards the cup, trickling towards the cup, comes to a pause with the Nike logo showing, and then the ball drops. So there's all these moments that we all have ingrained in our heads from over the years the back nine at the Masters has been just such a dynamic, uh, exciting nine-hole watch on Sunday because there's been these ridiculous collapses on the back nine and amazing comebacks. And it's, it's because of the way the course is set up. It's set up a risk-reward situation where if you get hot and make the shots, you can really score, but there's trouble all over the place. And it's amazing to see the great golfers um, – was it 1996 watching Greg Norman lose his feel and touch on the back nine and having Nick Faldo just make the charge and come back to win on Greg Norman, Scott Hoke in 89, a two foot putt. What makes a professional golfer get the yips and, and miss the two foot putt? 22 year old Jordan Spieth taking a quadruple bogey, uh, hitting into Ray's Creek multiple times after he'd won it the year before. It amazes you that guys that could do this in their sleep, pro golfers, pro athletes, we get in a groove and you're playing at the peak of your game to all of a sudden lose it. Uh, the all-time great Jack Nicklaus, uh, to watch him on the flip side of this, turn it on on the back nine. Seve Ballesteros had a lead that looked insurmountable. And Jack, a guy that had played the entire he was two under going into the day. He played even par through eight holes, goes on a streak of seven birdies in nine holes. And he walks up to 15th fairway and he's hot. He's, he's birdie three to last four, looks to his son, Jack Jr. on a par five and says, how far would a three go right now? And kind of with a smile. And then he hits his iron into the green and sinks a ridiculous eagle putt. And he's off and running and, and goes on to win it. 
I want to look at the mindset. You know, we, we talk about people being in the zone and how does that happen? And I think the number one thing is you eliminate doubt. You eliminate doubt and you do that by all your preparation, right? Everybody's going out on the range in golf and they've got their stroke. In football, we practice day in and day out. We can make every throw. What is the difference on game day? What is the difference when everything is on the line? And I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. John Havlicek and I have had a conversation about in those moments when you are so locked in, everything else is happening in slow motion. You are moving at full speed and everyone else on a football field, on a basketball court is moving in slow motion. And you have that extra time to make that decision. And for a golfer, I don't know exactly what it is, but you can see it. You can feel it in that 86 round where Jack came back uh, to win. You could see the confidence. You could hear it in his voice. He hits the shot at 15, goes on to eagle that hole. 16, a hole that he's owned since 1963, went back to 63, birdied that to take the lead to win the Masters as the youngest guy to win the Masters, but it was that 16th hole. So you're walking into a position where you're confident. You've had success at this hole before. 16th hole, he was one behind Weisskopf in 75, which turned it around for him. And he steps into 16, he hits his five iron in, and Jack Jr., his caddy, says, oh, be right, be right. And Jack looks at him and says, it is. It's just the knowing, the confident level. And that, you know, for me, I had four or five games over my career where I knew the beginning to the end of that game was that way, where you're in the moment, you're so locked in. You could be in, you could be in your backyard playing football. You could be at the high school field, the college field, in front of the fans at Alabama or in a packed stadium at Gillette Stadium. And everything is oblivious except for you're out there and it's like your playground. You're just having fun. You made the shot. You made the, the throw. As easy as those games feel, as, as how it, it just comes so naturally to you to, to turn it loose. And I think that's the key is that certain guys have the ability to be on the biggest stage in, with the crowds, the TV, national audience, and feel like they're in their backyard just playing. And whether it's golf, whether it's baseball, whether it's football, the step up to the moment. For me, one of those pinnacle moments, obviously, everyone remembers the Hail Mary pass against Miami. But it wasn't just that moment. That was an entire game for me where I felt like we were we were at a practice. I'm dropping back and throwing the ball with full confidence. Guys are getting open. I'm putting the ball where I want to put it. And there was an extreme confidence level. It was just flowing. In fact, in the third quarter, actually, it was the beginning of the fourth quarter, we played for a field goal and tied the game, which drove me nuts because I was feeling so good. I knew that if we just called the pass, they were going to stick it in the end zone. So we get the ball back. They're scoring a touchdown with 28 seconds to go. There's a shot of me on the sideline just nodding my head like, all right, okay, we've got 28 seconds. I already knew the plays I wanted to call, the situation. I just wanted to get the ball near midfield, get it across midfield and take a shot at the end zone. It wasn't going to be enough time, but there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to complete two or three passes. We'd get out there near midfield and we'd be throwing it for the end zone. And then even in that last minute or that last split second, we're at the line of scrimmage ready to run a Hail Mary. And because of the way they're going to rush, I told the tight end to go long down the backside. It was like I was walking around in my backyard playing with the guys at a Thursday practice and just calling another play. And there was no doubt in my mind that I'd be able to hold on to the ball as long as I possibly want it. 
and that I would get the ball near, you know, whether we actually catch it and it actually happens, who knows? But to us, we were just in the moment and just having fun. And it's like, oh, this is awesome. Let's take a shot at this. I threw a seam route up the field on the first play of that drive to Troy Stratford. He catches for about an 18-yard gain. He's getting tackled. Gerard Phelan is over by the sideline, like patting his hands and yelling to Troy to lateral the ball. Everybody that was in that moment, just having fun, playing, relaxed. You don't realize it's a national TV audience. You don't realize the stage you're on or what the game really means. It's an ability to lock into a moment in time and you're out there and there's 11 guys in the huddle and that's all that exists. And uh, we played the games with smiles on our faces and that's when you play your best. And in that moment, I just, I shouldn't have rolled right because the guy came so far upfield. I probably should have just stepped under him and slid right. But I ran around him and I, there was no doubt in my mind I'd get around that guy. And when I got to the outside, I just wound up and turned it loose. And Gerard, you'd have to talk to him about his mindset throughout, but there was no doubt in his mind that he would have a chance at the ball. And all you're looking for in those games or in those situations are the opportunities to make a play. And, uh, you know, to get that last opportunity, we had 28 seconds and we were like, shoot, this is what we have. Let's go do it. So I, I think the biggest part of it is the mindset that goes in to last second shot guys that want the ball in their hands, guys that want to take the last shot in basketball, guys that want to be a closer in baseball and step on the mound and, and get those final three outs. The guy that wants to be at the plate and the guy that wants to be standing over the 15 foot putt to win the masters. I almost envied the guy that didn't care as much as I, I, I always felt like I kind of cared a little too much. So occasionally the big picture thing would, would weigh in on me. And that's when you start to feel pressure. You start to feel pressure when you step back and look at the whole situation and see the big picture and, and know how many people are watching and what is at risk. And, and that's when fear creeps into the conversation. What is it about a guy like Tiger Woods that when he won his first master just pulls away and wins by 12 strokes. And what is it this past week that a six stroke league turns into a one stroke win because of the back nine, something that just happens to the most amazing athletes in their field at every level. And, uh, you know, for me, I love that feeling of you're playing with a smile on your face, you're relaxed. And those moments come once in a lifetime twice in a lifetime. Some guys could bottle it. Some guys could do it every week, you know, whether it was a Tiger Woods doing it every week or Jack Nicklaus doing it every week or a guy that Tom Brady that steps out on the field and with a new group of guys in a new uniform and just goes out and plays and is able to, to do it week in and week out. It's, it's an amazing thing to see. I, I made a decision after we lost the game in trying to, to be conservative and protect the football that I, from now on, I'm going to go out I'm going to score as many points as possible, especially in the Canadian football league when I was playing up there where I could control it a little bit more. Um, turn it loose, be aggressive the entire game, beginning to end, score as many points as we can. And at the end of the day, we'll look up at the scoreboard and see how much we win by. Because I think that's what happens to the guys on the back nine at Augusta that decide, hey, I've got a five, these five and six stroke leads. It's just all of a sudden seem to disappear is because all of a sudden, you realize the situation. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm about to win the Masters. And my wife and I joke about it all the time. It's like in other sports, it's like the team, the underdog, finally, you know, they're up by 20 points in a college basketball game. And then they look down and they realize 
they look at their jersey and realize who they really are. And we should not be beating Kentucky or Duke. You know, we're up by 15 here. And, and now you start playing not to lose. And that's when things get away from you. And the, the champion feels indecisiveness. They feel that opportunity to come flying back at you and they take advantage of it, turn it loose, play relaxed and find a way to win and come back. My guest will be Will Zolotoris, a really fun young kid that uh, played in just his second major as a pro, went out and just turned it loose and uh, really fun conversation. Remember, you can get the Flutie Flakes cast on the SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcast and make sure you rate and review. Well, I'm fired up because uh, it's, it's just been an unbelievable week for, for golf and the Masters. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get Will Zalatoris on with us. And welcome to the Flutie Flakes cast. And uh, welcome, Will. How you doing? Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. This is uh, really exciting to talk to you. I, I watched just about every minute and was locked in from beginning to end. So it's really a thrill for me to have you. Step back 10,000 feet. Take a look at it. What's the takeaway from last week? Man, I just, I wish I could have slowed it down. You know, I did a good job of staying in the moment, but I mean, that seven days that I was there felt like it went by in seven minutes. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, every day I walked over that bridge on 12 and looked back just cause it's like, you know, I worked my ass off to get to this point and I finally got there and yeah, I, a lot of gratitude, a lot of appreciation. And obviously I knew I was playing some good golf. And so, you know, I, it's a really good feeling to be frustrated to lose by one. And you didn't know it was going to be by one because you were in the clubhouse and the numbers, Correct. you know, it felt like, okay, it's not going to be one because I'm a hack golfer, right? We go out and we shoot 88 to 92 or 86 to 95. And it's really, we don't care. We're going to drop another ball and hit it out. We rolled it out from behind a tree anyway. So it was probably 106. Yeah. How did, <laughs> how did, after 72 holes of golf, the one stroke thing for you, what do you go back to? What's the one shot you want back? I think it's, I mean, any collection of shots on 13, um, you know, I played it an even par for the week, which you just can't do. I mean, you see, you see all those guys knock one tight out of the trees and make Eagle or make a good birdie. And that's what jump starts them to win the golf tournament. And I just didn't have it. Gave myself a, I had about a 50 or 60 foot look that weirdly that green is just so slow. I don't know what it was. I had, you know, I had two 50 footers over the last two days and on that hole and I three pod to both of them. And that's the difference right there. You know, I just needed to play 13 and a couple under par and, you know, just like I, I would have basically just played average golf and, you know, it just, it is what it is, but that's the one to me where it's like, Every single day I'm walking off 13, like, it. like I just need you know, <laughs> one shot, one shot, one shot. That's being a pro athlete. That's that means you're there. You walk away. Guys have Hall of Fame careers and pro all pro seasons. And why do we remember this stupid negative? Yeah, you know, well, let's go back the other direction then. What what was the shot that you loved? Oh man. Um I'd probably go with the final round chip shot on five I think will be very underappreciated by people who watched it on TV because 
I basically am chipping it up a mound where if I miss it a little bit left, it runs down to the left. If I miss a right, it runs 30 feet down to the right. And if I just gun it a little bit hard, it's going to go 20 feet long. And I hit this thing. And when I hit it, I hit clipped it perfectly. But of course, I'm trying to air on the safe side and give myself maybe an eight, 10 foot look coming back up the hill. And the second I hit it, I was like, oh no, this, this is coming back to my feet. And it just crept over the ridge and trickled down and went to about a foot. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to have to make a 10, 12 foot of a par. And I'm just walking up there and kind of kicking it in and moving on to the next tee. And that was after starting off birdie birdie on Sunday, that, that was kind of the one where I was like, okay, we're, we're locked in. Yeah. You say started out birdie, birdie, birdie on Sunday. First of all, it's your first masters, really your second uh, major as a pro. To be able to step out on Sunday and just let it rip, what gives you the confidence to stand up there? Maybe in, in along those lines, go back through the week of what was your most nerve-wracking shot. But what gives you the confidence on Sunday to just go out and be you and play? Trust me, if I could figure out the psychology, I think I'd make a lot of money out of it. But <laughs> the, the best explanation I can give you is... I've wanted to be in that moment, you know, to go win the masters on Sunday, go out and go get it, go shoot 65 and win the golf tournament. And I put myself in that position. You know, I, it was mine for the taking. If I shot 65, Hideki was going to go have to go earn it. And, you know, I played fine. I, you know, I just, it's kind of some ups and downs here and there, but it honestly, in a weird way, it was freeing because it's like, I've wanted to do this my entire life and I'm here. So why get nervous now? You know, you've you've climbed the mountain. You're up on top. I mean, let's go. You know, I, I think probably the most mer- most nervous I was was seriously on um, the first tee shot the first day, just because it's you know it's every kid's dream. You know, four please now driving. You know, it, that's just something that I you know to hear your name called. It was kind of not emotional because I was very locked in, but you know, kind of like I remember exactly how the guy pronounced it in the back of my you know in my mind, but sitting around on Saturday for eight hours, I guess, before I teed off was, you know, final group of a major. That was, that was interesting. But I told my caddy when we walked off the tee, I was like, you know, I really, it's like, I'm not trying to minimize this, but I really thought I'd be more nervous. And I made a nice par out of the fairway bunker and kind of, kind of was off to the races. So it's just, like I said, I think that, that attitude of gratitude, I hate how cheesy that sounds, but it just, it freed me up the whole week. That's legit there at Augusta. I get the feeling watching it on TV. I mean, I, my favorite moment is watching the ceremonial tee shots with Nicholas and yeah. Gary Player and, and the old, you know, Arnold Palmer before, but Lee Elder was there this year. What was your oh wow moment nostalgic end of it? Was it looking back at 12 when you get to the green and look back or go over the bridge or was it some other aspect? Yeah. You know, I thought it was, so I teed off in the morning on Thursday. I was too close to my tea time to go over there and watch. I still kind of needed to take care of my business, but it was just so cool to see Gary player, Jack on the range, you know, Lee Elder on the range, hitting golf balls, getting ready. Like they're about to go play. You know, they're talking about what they're working on. And I'm like, these guys are like 80 and 85 and they're still, <laughs> they're still students of the game. It's just, it's, it was so awesome to see. Like, if anything, it was just like, it just kind of, that was like probably the most awestruck I was all week is just see these guys there, you know, I don't know. I mean, probably was it 10 masters between Gary and, and Jack and they're just sitting there on the range talking about, you know, working on this and that. And I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, they're this still is working just, on is, stuff. Yeah. It's like, this is so cool. <laughs> I, I had a chance to meet Jack. He and I were at an event together, uh, a dinner thing. 
And I told him I grew up with a three wood and a seven iron and a putter. <laughs> and I'd sneak on the public courses and I'd play a few holes. And to this day, those are my favorite clubs, you know? And he said, you know, a lot of guys on the tour are that way, that, that they want to play to a certain distance because this is their club. You know, Jack was saying about Gary, I, I said to him, because I had watched the ceremony of tee shot that year, and Jack hit it and he, he, he hit it right on straight as an arrow. And he kind of had that look in his eye, like, yeah, that'll play. I could part from there. I, I'm going to get that. He said that Gary really gets competitive about it and has to outdrive them every year and just rip at it. So there's still a competitiveness and I don't care how old you are. I'm still the same way. I oh, still yeah. feel like I could, I could step on a football field and move the football down. The, I, I say I got one drive or one good hit, whatever comes first. And then I'm done. You hit me, I'm done. But I could, I could drive it down the field one time. So it just lets you know, I, I just, I love that aspect of the masters more than anything in the world. And it's just so cool. It's it's step ahead. That is the nostalgical thing. How yeah. about the Adam Sandler tweet thing? <laughs> <laughs> How I cool is that? My, my, my family's been giving me a really hard time. They're like, you really want to try to get in happy Gilmore too, don't you? I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't hate it, but I mean, that's not my, you know, I, it's so funny. I was actually texting with the, uh, AT&T Pro-Am uh, CEO, Steve John, and I had played with Tony Romo um, when I first turned pro. And I I was joking. I said, the hell with Tony. I need to play with Adam one year. Like, we need to make this happen. He's like, yo, you were right. You're absolutely right. So that was funny. I, I just embrace it. I mean, I think it's so funny hearing all these guys dropping happy Gilmore lines, you know, nonstop when I'm walking up, you know, walking up the fairways. And that's honestly like people have always said, you know, it's like, wow, you always look like you're having fun. You're laughing. It's like, well, I keep get the Owen Wilson impersonation. And I always hear people going, you know, wow, they get that going. And then I get the happy Gilmore lines. Then you get, you know, a couple of the drunk guys saying like, well, man, I got five bucks on you. And it's like, how can you not laugh at some of these guys? Like it, I'm out there, you know, going about my business and these guys are just chirping me like crazy. It's, it's, it's awesome. I absolutely love it. See our generation, we were Caddyshack lines, all <laughs> yeah. the, all the Caddyshack, all the, and now I guess growing up for you on the course, it was always happy Gilmore lines. Yeah. And especially with the long hair, I've already been told by the, I've already been told by the girlfriend. She's like, are you really going to keep that? I'm like, well, it's hot in Texas. So I don't know. She's like, she's like, I think you should cut it. And I'm like, I've got a brand going here. <laughs> you got to keep it going. I can yeah. see the picture though. You in a caddy outfit next to Adam Sandler in his Bruins jersey, ready to tee off. <laughs> it's it's got to happen. Something. Tony Romo. Uh, yeah. How often did, did you get a chance to play with Tony? See, now I play one select. I am a fourteen handicap. I am a total hack. Uh, I get to go out to Tahoe every year and act like I'm a pro and playing the celebrity <laughs> event where you have to play it as a, and after the first day I shoot my 92 and then I relax and play. Tony eats that event up and Tony kills us all. Uh, how much, how much money have you taken from Tony on the course? You know, it's, <laughs> it's honestly about even, I'm not saying that to say I've actually taken a bunch of money off of it. It's actually pretty level. We play, we play so much golf together and I think it's, um, you know, during that four month layoff that we had last year with COVID, um, you know, we couldn't practice. So we just went out and played and carried our bags. And well, Tony had one of those golf scooters cause he refuses to walk, anyway. <laughs> but it was basically, um, Tony, uh, Davis Riley, who is my then roommate. He's high up on the corn Ferry points list. Mm-hmm. I'll be on the PJ tour next year. And then another friend of ours, Mike Baldwin. And we just played it basically a death match money game. I mean, we just wanted to 
beat each other's brains in for four months. And so when I came back, I was super sharp, but you know, Tony's been such a big brother to me. And, you know, I, I remember two years ago after missing a bunch of Monday qualifiers, and he's like, Hey, just come over to the house. And let's just talk. You know, I was like, oh, sure. And, you know, so my wife's out of town. She's got the kids. Let's just hang out. And just sat there and he was telling me stories about, you know, coming out of Eastern Illinois and told me the whole story about, you know, um, the one that he said in the, um, a football life when, you know, he's sitting in the room with, uh, um, Jerry Jones and Bill Parcells. And, you know, he's asking for a couple million dollars and like, Hey, you need to sign this 750 contract. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, where does that come from? You know, and I, just the, you know, stuff like that, the, those are the conversations that we have that I've gotten a lot out of. And the other part too, that's fun for me is he's such a student of the game of golf. I mean, the guy, just like you said on your end, he's so competitive and he just absolutely eats and breathes it. I mean, he wants to be so good, so bad. And there's sometimes when he asks me questions that I don't have the answer to, and that kind of has made me better too. I mean, you know, that's something that, you know, you hear a lot of almost sports psychologists or, you know, peak performers where they just say like, ask better questions. You want to get better, ask better questions. And that guy, there's just some, there's some things when it comes to golf, like I have no idea. You never stop learning. I played till I was 43 years old football. Yeah. You never stop learning. You look at Jack and Gary and they're, they're still talking things through and figuring out, you know, and, and what's, yeah. what happened, you know, and you look at Tiger's career there's going to be adjustments along the way. Oh, okay. Your back's not as strong as it used to be. Your knees bothering you. You constantly get around guys and have to kick questions around and, and find another way to do it. And, you know, at some point you're still young and healthy and just, <laughs> so, first of all, when you play with Tony, you please, he playing the tips with you. Yeah. He's playing back there with me. I give him three shots aside. Um, the problem with him though, and it just wears me out is he'll shoot 70 five with like five birdies. And if those five birdies come on pop holes, I have no chance. The guy can birdie any hole anywhere. Like he's that good. It's just, it's just the big numbers. That is what he has to really eliminate. So it's a consistency thing. It's just every shot, every, everybody fights with that though. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I've really tried to harp on him and I was taught very old school. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, Hey, go stick yourself behind a tree and go hit a punch cut underneath and try to say par and, you know, okay, well, how about go over here and we're going to stick you in a bunker that you maybe could go for it. You maybe could lay up, you know? And so David price was a head pro at the golf club that I belong to. And he's basically been a second father to me, but he played uh, college golf with Tom kite and Ben Crenshaw. And they won a national title at Texas back in the seventies. I, I got asked, a hypothetical the other day that was like, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? And I'm like this, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, this is, this is it. And yeah, I love this, but the thing with him that we're working on hard is just like, you know, Hey, you know, you want to be Ben Hogan. You want to be that guy who just knows his golf swing better than anybody else. But what happens when this ball is sitting down the rough a little bit and maybe the grass is a little bit wet or, you know, just learn how to play the game a little bit more. So he's getting there. I mean, that's the part that's so fun is the guy's 40 and, you know, just like you said, he's still learning. I mean, he's, he's, he's full throttle on this. It's so cool to hear. And by the way, that is my forte is I need those shots. I need, <laughs> I can't, you put me in the middle of the fairway, 150 out with, I, I can't hit the green. Put me behind the tree where I got to kind of close it down and punch a line drive and get it out. Then I'm, in, then I'm happier. If I have to manufacture a shot, and maybe it's the 
you're not supposed to really be able to do it thing. And then I can, I can make that shot. You talk about, uh, you know, the influences in your life. How about the story of being on the driving range and, uh, Ken Finn jury coming over? Yeah, I was, I think I was five. It might've been six. And he, I mean, I was just a total range rat, you know, kid, just rapid fire machine gun on the side of the range. There's, you know, 500 golf balls within about a 40 yard area in front of me. Uh, I'm sure I pissed off all the pickers back in the day just because they're like, look at all these balls on the tee. But he came over to me and he just said, you know, I looked over at my dad and he said, man, this kid's got a really good golf swing. And he just said, you know, does he love it? And he said, yeah, I mean, look at him. I mean, it's on his third basket and we're trying to get him to go home. And he came over and fixed my grip a little bit. And I've had the same overlap grip since I was that age. So, you know, at the time I didn't really appreciate it just because I was too young, but you know, there's a massive shrine at Cal club where my dad belonged for 20 years. Um, as I got older, I was able to really appreciate, um, kind of obviously, you know, guys, you know, how I hold the golf club is basically because of him. It's amazing. And it's the passion. I, it's, I loved practice. I love being, I hated the meetings in football. Football is a lot of meetings, especially at the pro level you're watching, but boy, get me on the field. Let me, I'll, I'll go outside. I, I play adult league baseball now yeah. and I go out and I could take batting practice and pitch all night long and just, I don't <laughs> want to leave the field. And yeah. that's the passion you have for the game. And uh, it comes across and everybody was rooting for you this week. It was so much fun to watch. Um, Leave us with your biggest hack moment. It, so you've been on the tour for a couple of years. What's your, I felt like a hacker when I did this. Oh man. Um, felt like a hacker. I had one that was, uh, uh, Oh, actually this was a really good one. Was <laughs> actually, I, I still can't believe I did this, but my cat, we were way out of it in Mexico and I, it was just like, you know what? Screw it. Weapons free. We're, we're shipping everything. We're going after it. Like we're in 45th. Let's just have some fun. And, and I was standing on, I think it was par five, number six or seven. I think it might be seven. I'm telling my caddy, like, look, I'm going to hit this 40 yard hook over the tree. I'm going to, you know, it'll land soft just because everything's so wet and you know, it's pumping down wind. So I can, you know, this, I can hit seven from like two ten. you know, just cause the thing's going to ride the wind. And he's like, all right, man, whatever. You know, I, I love Ryan because, you know, we, we have a lot of fun out there, but I hit this thing and I absolutely hit it straight on the screws, hits a tree, goes straight over my head and lands on the water directly behind me. And so when you look on the shot tracker, the best part about it was you see shot two from left rough, and then it shows the ball going backwards. Like, you know, it's like, what the hell just happened? But that was definitely probably the most demoralizing one when you see a ball sailing slowly over your head and plunking behind you. See, that gives us all hope, right? Yeah, that yeah. gives all us guys that shoot double-digit handicaps hope that it can happen. You know, it makes us feel good. It actually does. <laughs> it really does. We know, we know you can stand on the tee box and let it rip and – birdie any hole in the world uh thanks so much really enjoy talking with you thanks for taking the time and uh boy great things to come ahead for you we really um it's gonna be fun watching you over the years now 
Thanks, Doug. Let me know if uh, you ever want to get that 14 down to a 12 and go play some time. There we go. Absolutely. I can get, <laughs> that's, that's my goal. I can get it down to a 12. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, man. That was fun. I was like a little kid talking golf. It's like, I know I'm a total hack, but talking to a guy that knows the ins and outs and is playing and just had success. He just watching him this weekend. It was really a, a cool experience for me. And he's so much fun to talk to. His enthusiasm is amazing. Uh, let's move on. Tom, you got any Twitter questions? Uh, of course, Doug. And as always, uh, you can tweet your questions at Doug Flutie. Uh, one that kind of stood out, and I never knew this about you, and I guess I, I should have been watching the tape a little more, but one guy always said, Doug, I always noticed that you could block, especially as a quarterback. Where did you kind of learn that, and is there a certain technique? For a guy that's 4'11", 100 pounds, um, you know, I don't have a lot of options blocking. I can't take on a big guy. So the key for me in throwing a blocking usually happens when a running back reverses field or – you're running some kind of a reverse and all of a sudden you're in the open field and you go downfield and get ahead of the play. Um, I've definitely got to go for a cut block. And now I don't even know what the rules are. Like I'd get in trouble. I probably got flagged all over the place now, but you go, you got to build up speed for me to have any kind of force and you go as fast and as hard as you can at the outside thigh and throw your inside shoulder at his outside thought. So the only two things they can do, the big guys put their hands on you and push you to the ground, but you're still on the correct side of him. So he's got to step over you and, and get to the ball. The little guys, you know, DBs, whatever, you can get into that thigh and actually cut them. And my favorite block of all time, well, one in, one in college, I got a head on a reverse. We were playing UMass and I, I stayed on my feet and I just got up high and backed the guy into the end zone. Jared Phelan had run a reverse for a touchdown. But we were in Saskatchewan and I was in the open field ahead of a running back. And it was a defensive back. And I just went full speed at his outside thigh. And I got him right on it and flipped him onto the ground. And I jumped up and looked around. And, I'm, you know, these are the things that I get excited. You know, it's like all of a sudden in the meetings on Monday, yeah, all the guys are pointing. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other is in Buffalo. Antoine Smith ran a reverse. We were playing the Jets. I started back and Mo Lewis was the outside linebacker. Mo's a big boy. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, what can, what am I? So I just did an ankle biter. I went as hard as I could at his thigh. And I thought I knocked him to the ground, but he actually put his hands on me, pushed me to the ground and then tripped over me, trying to step over me and fell. Uh, that was a big one because uh, Antoine turned the corner. It ended up being like a 20 yard touchdown run. And I think, you know what it did? It really, it motivated the other guys on my team to see when they see their quarterback, you know, and I've seen Brady get out in front and block or anybody. It really motivates the other guy that, hey, this guy's going to do anything he can do to help us win. All right. Be honest. How many dirty uh, blindside blocks did you have? How many times would you have thrown a flag on yourself? Uh, well, see, I, I wouldn't have thrown any on myself because I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I did get called for a clip because we were running the reverse and I got to turn and seal the defensive end. And I and the rule had changed by that time, so I couldn't cut him. And I go to block him high and he pushes me to the ground and I just sort of stayed on the block the best I could. And I roll into his legs and I still didn't even block him. You know, he just stepped over me and ran to me and they threw a flag for a below the waist block. Because I, you know, I just, there's nothing else I can do. Typical officiating. Yeah. I just get myself in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last one here. Was there a call or a, uh, a, an officiating error that was made that kind of cost you a game or kind of went in your favor that you kind of look back and think about? One that went against us 
We were in a playoff game. We end up winning this game in the last seconds. We had to go 88 yards and drive the ball because earlier in the fourth quarter, I ran a shovel pass and it was a cold, windy day, all that type of stuff. But um, I run the shovel pass and it's well defended. And I kind of threw it at his feet to be incomplete and it bounces and rolls away. And I stood there for a fraction of a second and I didn't hear a whistle. So I went after the ball, dove for it, it scrambled around, they fall on the ball. It should be an incomplete pass. And I turn around, Ken Lazarus was the uh, official, this is in CFL days. And he and I know each other real well. I go, Ken, it was a shovel pass. What did you? He goes, well, why'd you go after it? I go, because you didn't blow the whistle. He's like, well, I missed it. I, I couldn't see it. And the way you reacted, I just thought it was a fumble. So I let it go. <laughs> anyway, it got us in trouble in the moment. We wind up coming back to win that game. Another one in the NFL, I was trying to spike the ball. We were putting the last second drive together. We needed to kick a field goal against the Patriots to win. And it was going to be about a 50-yard field goal. I completed the pass. We run up. I go to spike the ball, and it comes out of the side of my hand and goes sideways. They blow the whistle anyway. Belichick's over there complaining and yelling and screaming. And sure enough, they, they get together, realize it's a fumble. And we didn't have a review at that time. So they backed the ball up about three or four yards. We kicked the field goal to win the game. It hits the crossbar. We ended up going to overtime. I think we ended up winning that game. You and I were trying to research which game it was, but um, Terry McCauley was actually the official of that. And it was his first game as a referee. And he always tells me I got him in trouble because he screwed up a call in the first game as a referee. One and went in our favor, CFL. Great cup game. We're trying to ice the game with a second, with a field goal to go up by two scores. I do a quarterback sneak. As I do the sneak, we have the butt fumble off the center and the ball rolls backwards. We fall on it, whatever, but we wouldn't have gotten the first down. There would have been a turnover on the play. They didn't see the fumble. They didn't rule it as a fumble. And they actually end up giving us the first down. We go on in that drive to kick a field goal that ices the game. So that worked in our favor. The Flutie Flakes cast is available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. Remember, the Flutie Flakes cast is part of the SiriusXM podcast network. The executive producer is Tom Kress. The associate producers are Andrew Emmer and Chris Tyler. Sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Thanks for listening. SiriusXM Podcasts.